Hi, everyone. Radhika Jones here, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. With award season in full swing, there's no better time to become a Vanity Fair subscriber. Let our editors take you behind the scenes of this year's nominated films, from prestige indies to major blockbusters, plus exclusive coverage of Hollywood's biggest events. Visit VanityFair.com today and save 10% on a yearly subscription for a limited time with promo code OSCARS. That's VanityFair.com, promo code OSCARS, for 10% off a year of insights and access you won't find anywhere else. Subscribe today while this offer lasts through March 31st, 2024. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, and I'm here right now with Richard Lawson. Hello. And Richard, you had the pleasure of speaking to the subject of our interview episode this week. Tell me about getting on the line with Amanda Seyfried. Yeah, we had a nice talk about her really, I I think, kind of as she frames it, career redefining in some ways uh, work on the dropout as Elizabeth Holmes. You know, something that she said was daunting, but also really exciting because it was a real meaty character that she got to tuck into over eight episodes and much to my surprise, said she'd want to do again. She she said she'd be game for a season two, which uh, I think I would be too, actually. Oh, man. I have not seen the finale of The Dropout as we record this, and I have been enjoying it immensely. Like I, I'm pretty sure I know how the Elizabeth Holmes story ends in the present day, and I don't know how they do a season two, but I have liked it enough that I would watch it too. Yeah, so we should say that this interview is also going to run on our sister podcast, Still Watching. Um, so there are some spoilers for the final episode, but... They're mild, or you can skip ahead or whatever, or listen to it after Friday. Or spoilers for real life. Well, r- yes, I mean, I guess that's, that is true. Um, <laughs> you might also hear some fire trucks and a small child in the background. Uh, she was at home, so, so, so was I. Uh, so life intervened a little bit. But yeah, she's a really thoughtful person and just had a lot of interesting things to say about what she thinks of Elizabeth Holmes, both kind of negatively and positively. Um, so yeah, I think... Um, you know, it was nice to catch her after all this huge work is done and just kind of reflecting on it. Well, let's listen to your conversation with Amanda Seyfried. Well, I have the distinct honor of having on the line today the star of The Dropout, Amanda Seyfried. Amanda, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So this is a big undertaking, this show, this role. I'm curious when it was presented to you, what 
what attracted you to it? And, and also, conversely, what scared you about it? Well, I had already been very familiar with the story. I don't want to say a fan of the story, but I, I had already seen the documentary and I'd already listened to the Dropout podcast at that point that I joined the show. And I think the thing that I was so attracted to was, well, Liz Merriweather, um, for a start, who I know to be incredibly smart and thoughtful and unique, um, always able to find the humor in, in darkness in such a way that I really relate to. And also her tackling another very unique woman. And I, I was just fascinated by the possibilities, like what, you know, how Liz would relate, would would connect the audience to this very um, infamous person. And um, and it just seemed like a, the most incredible opportunity. And that opportunity came so, so, so fresh off the heels of my Oscar nomination that it, it just felt like, you know, good things beget good things and opportunities. And I it, it just seemed like this was the best opportunity I'd ever been given to play such a enigmatic role. And obviously it was really scary too because of the responsibility of of telling the story, you know, from an empathetic point of view. You know, you, you have a, such a responsibility to the character that you play, but also make it thrive, make it survive on screen, you know, make it interesting, make, uh, make sure that we're hitting all the right points and, and including all the elements of good TV without serving the story without, you know, diverting. And it's just all the, all the issues you would have when you're the star of a show. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's interesting that you, you said, you, you know, you'd seen the documentary, you knew, you know, a lot about this story. I'm curious in the process of making the show and embodying its central figure, did your opinion of it change? Did you learn things or get a different perspective on it than you started off with? I did. I, I learned the more time you spend with somebody, whether you're with them in a room communicating with them or you're across the country studying them, um, it's still time spent with somebody. And I think that naturally breeds a need to get closer. And in getting closer, I was able to, you know, connect some dots, you know, connect behaviors to choices. And, you know, everything that was written that Liz Merriweather wrote felt like it could have been true. You know, we don't know if it's true, but it, it made sense. And it, and it gave a foundation that we had yet to find in these documentaries this investigative journalism. Um, it was always to try to get as many facts as possible. And our job here was to create an imagined reality between the facts. And we had that goalpost. We had, it, it was just so solidified. We had so much information. I guess I just learned more about where she came from and why she might've made the, why she might've made the decisions that she made. And I just, um, I felt like I had I had entered the world of, of, of a well-rounded human being as opposed to a two-dimensional villain. Something we've been talking about on this podcast throughout the run of the series is the really shrewd way that you and Liz Merriweather court our fascination, our 
horrified awe at what everything that was happening, but also there's empathy in there. You know, the show kind of stokes that in the viewer, I think. Where do you think that source of empathy is? Like, what part of Elizabeth Holmes is the part that we should see and care about as a person, even though she did all these harmful things? It's a good question. I think it's um, her drive is, you know, in the beginning, it's, it's admirable. <laughs> I just, she would really stop at nothing to get where she wanted to go. And it seemed like a really good purpose and um, beautiful passion. And it was easy to connect with her her reasons that she claimed that were behind this company who doesn't want to change the world for the better change healthcare as we know it um you know change people's lives and and take away those incredibly scary moments and um get information in such an easy way it just seems more accessible for everybody around the world it would have been amazing like how could you not connect to that messaging also, her awkwardness. I mean, she's, when you watch her speak, you feel connected to her. And I'm just saying this in my own experience and people I've spoken to. And also, and people who really invested in this company uh, financially and emotionally, I think it's just really hard not to be pulled into the way she speaks. You know, she speaks with so much humility. And it feels so honest and... <laughs> And yet, you know, it's not. But I think when people laugh at themselves, that's the thing that always drew me in and made me trust people. She was able to do that. Yeah, I mean, she does talk about wanting to help people and sort of change the world in a, I think, a purely altruistic sense. She also says in the first episode, I want to be a billionaire. That's the thing. That's what's so confusing. Yeah. Do you think those things are mutually exclusive or can they exist together? Is that possible? I think you can have, the both can be true. Yeah, I, I, I you know, I want to be a billionaire too. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, same, fair. That would be amazing. <laughs> but if you're just going to try to come up with ways to become a billionaire, then your intention doesn't really matter. I think if like your first goal is to become rich off of something, then you do anything. If your priority is not the well-being of others above that, you know, I'm not saying that her priority was just to become a billionaire, but if it was, which at times in this series, in this, in this story, it seems that that's the case. Um, but yeah, they can, you can have, both can be true. Um, but it, it did seem like the billionaire goal came first in a lot of ways and, and that seed was planted very early so it's easy to question her motives in starting Theranos. Hey, everybody. I'm entertainment journalist Drew Taylor. And I'm filmmaker Charles Hood. And we host Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. But right now we're about to launch our first ever universe-expanding miniseries. That's right. Get ready for Light the Fuse presents The Directors. We'll speak to filmmakers who have made iconic Paramount movies and get them to open up in a way that only we can. That's right. Listen to Light the Fuse presents The Directors wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 
This episode of Little Gold Men is brought to you by MUBI, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. They have everything from iconic directors to emerging auteurs. There is always something new to discover because with MUBI, each and every film is hand-selected so you can explore incredible movies streaming anytime, anywhere. Right now, they have a film collection for performers we love, and they are highlighting one of this year's Oscar frontrunners, Lily Gladstone. So I am here with David Canfield to talk about how much we love Lily Gladstone, and especially her film that is now on movie, Certain Women. David, fond memories there. Fond memories. What an introduction. None of us knew who she was before that film, um, but it's quite a thing to be in a Kelly Reichardt film with Michelle Williams, Kristen Stewart, and Laura Dern and completely steal it. And uh, now we're talking about it to this day. You can try Mubi for free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash Little Goldmen. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Little Goldmen for a whole month of great cinema for free. Mubi.com slash Little Gold Men. On the sort of map of Elizabeth Holmes that you've drawn in, in playing this character over eight hours, is there a point you see where she stops believing it herself? You know, because all the way up to the finale, she's still saying, we can do this. This is this is real. But do you think that she was lying to herself and to others? Or how did you kind of calibrate how much Elizabeth actually bought into what she was saying? I think... There was a point when the Walgreens guys were coming in that she understood from just my perspective of of our version of it. I played it like she understood that she wasn't where she needed to be, but it didn't take away the power of believing that they were on the right track. It just was going to take longer. And I think it's like, it's like, this is a stupid analogy, but it's, it's like when you're under construction and every month they're like, ah, oh, it's probably going to be end of the next month. And then you're at the end of the next month and you're, it's just that belief that it's going to get done. It's just, it's just taking a long time, but it's going to be worth it. And I think that's what she always believed till the very, very end. I think she still believes that this is going to to happen and it's going to change the world. She's no longer in control of that. But I think it's not science fiction exactly, but at the point that she was talking about it being a real thing, a thing that exists, like that her technology did in fact exist and work, it felt more like science fiction. I think there was a switch that was flipped when it felt like it was she was going to lose it all and instead of letting it go. She just doubled down and the power of belief in your own reality is so, it's really one of the most miraculous things in terms of how powerful humans are. Um, I think that's where she's at. I think that's where she's at by the end. Um, just, just 100% behind herself. Um, it's just a slight moment with the Walgreens guys about timing, but Never, never believing that it wasn't going to work. Yeah. And I think you feel that, I think that is part of the empathy in a weird way, because you're like, I want to believe it too. And I, you know, she just so ardently cares for it. And I think a big part of that is that we meet her in the show when she's so young, you know, she's what, 17, 18 years old. And then we follow 
her all the way up into her mid thirties. So, you know, obviously there's a big transformation with your voice and all that, but also you know, on the technical side of things, like what did you do to sort of age up with Elizabeth? God, that's a good question. I, 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 I consciously was, you know, channeling just myself as a 17 year old. It was, it was, it was a while ago, but I'm still very, it's all in my body that the trauma of being a teenager is just like forever may it exist somewhere in a bubble inside of me. Um, and I think I just connected to that because it, it was really, it was a lot easier to portray Elizabeth as a teenager and her awkwardness and, you know, with her dynamics with her parents and her brother and the kids at school it was just, it felt more natural for me to just play as I was in that time period. And, um, I just, I, I, I just related to her way easier. And so when she got a little bit older and more independent and her will just got stronger and she evolved into that business woman that, uh, just grabbed them by the balls, businesswoman. um, it was it was a little trickier because it's it's harder to relate to, and now I don't I, I'm if 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 I hadn't gotten to experience her younger self, that uh, perspective I, I don't you know just it just obviously would have been harder for the audience to really kind of get swept up in the journey and 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 feel as conflicted as hopefully people have been feeling um, or felt in the beginning of the series. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just Elizabeth who we see kind of evolve over the course of the show. It's also her relationship with Sonny, uh, played by Naveen Andrews. I'm curious how you two as actors approached the difficulty of that, uh, of kind of telling that relationship story, because it ends so bleakly, you know. And even though in the early scenes in Beijing, Sonny is a lot older and there's maybe something slightly predatory, maybe adjacent about that, but it also is sweet. So um, did you and Naveen like talk about how this was going to happen or was it just like, okay, we're on set and we just have to kind of figure that chemistry out in the moment? Yeah, we had rehearsal and we talked about the scripts a lot with with Liz Merriweather, Michael Showalter and Catherine Pope, she, we were all in a room together about a month before we started shooting and, and we talked about what we felt we needed to explore more. And I think there was some moments added to their getting to know each other montage because it did really, it was really sweetly written, probably more so than it had any right to be. But in TV, you, you've got to be able to connect to these people and there, and you got to kind of root for them a little bit. Uh, so Elizabeth, Liz Merriweather wrote a, some beautiful moments of them getting to know each other. And, um, and I do feel like we've earned where they end up before they get, you know, they start working together, but it was, it was cringy a lot of the times. And Naveen and I would, you know, um, it, it almost feel I don't want to speak for him, but it felt like we were both kind of commiserating and like how heartbreaking a lot of these moments that Liz wrote are and how how believable they are um, and probably happened in, in some way or another from where they started and where they ended up. Only they know, but um, the accounts that we've gotten from 
like the trial and stuff, it feels like we played it kind of definitely more in the vein of what, what's possible. And it was important for us to, to get awkward and, 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 and get dark um, and show both sides of the coin with them, like when it was good and when it was really bad and when it was really manipulative, because I think they're both incredibly manipulative people. And when you feel that codependency as an outsider, when you're with two people who are kind of stuck together emotionally, psychologically, it feels very strange to behold and, 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 and like embodying these people was just, it teaches, it reminds you of the things that you don't want in a relationship. So it needed to feel tumultuous at a point, but it also needed to feel like they were in that relationship because they felt safest with each other. So how do you show that? And like, like everything, two things can be true at the same time. Um, so I don't know. I, I think we, I think we had some incredible writing and it turns out that, you know, we were more right than we were than we thought we were. Elizabeth has spent so much time on this show being, you know, very controlled, very centered. Some might say tightly wound. And there are other moments like that throughout the series, which I think brings in some of Liz Merriweather's humor, you know, um, dancing yeah. scenes and these scenes of release, uh, even if it's creepy and she's wearing a mask of herself, <laughs> you know, um, were those cathartic for you as a performer to do as well? Incredibly. Like, I never get the opportunity or I very rarely get the opportunity to be weird and awkward and and just free. And so it was incredibly cathartic, liberating all the things. Hilarious. I mean, we do it and they, they say rolling and they have the music on and we're just really committing to the awkwardness of it the darkness of it because it's dark as as anything um the way these people relate to each other and to themselves it's um it can be it's almost painful to watch for some people but that's what makes it so thrilling to actually perform as an as an actor like i get to i get to move my body in ways that i would never it would never make sense to move that way and and i get to do that and it makes sense in this instant and it also has like such a, an effect on the audience. And it's just like, I shouldn't be watching this. It's like watching two people make love. It's like you, there's an intimacy there in the dancing throughout that it just feels like it's not for anyone's eyes. And that is all Liz Merriweather. Like how do, how do they express themselves this way? <laughs> And then we also have, you know, the closing scene of the whole series. Um, so spoiler alert, if people haven't watched, um, is this horrific, but also, again, cathartic primal scream moment. I'm curious, first off, what do you think she's screaming about? And also, if you have any reflection on when you filmed that, was it, you know, was it toward the end of the shoot or any? I'm just curious about how what that felt like for you as an actor. Uh, terrifying mainly because it's the last I mean I love binging shows and if it's if the last scene of a an 8 hour miniseries isn't satisfying it leaves just a bad taste in my mouth so I knew how important it was and I still didn't know I I there was something that needed to happen that wasn't necessarily written 
or it was written and I didn't necessarily know how to portray it because there's so many possibilities and I just needed to trust myself. But I think it was just screaming also is incredibly hard on the body. It's just your whole, it's your whole body. I think it was almost, and this is not a great word, but I think the scream came from a very petulant place. Mm-hmm. Almost like she was not angry with herself at all. Like that seemed to me like it could have been, it could have played like she's so devastated that it didn't work out and she's so mad at herself. But that is not at all what I think that was about. I think it was like, fuck you world. Fuck you for not laying down for me. Fuck you for not, for not working out. Like I'm going to get him. It's a tantrum. Yeah. It's like a, that's when there should be like a season two. (laughs) <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, I keep putting it out there because I didn't know how much I was going to enjoy playing her until I was done. And then even after that, I, I was like, I'll never play her again. That's just That was just hard. That was, that was a lot. And now I just, I miss it. And I feel like there's so much more to say. And there's so much more that's happened. I mean, life goes on. She's my age. Um, lots happened. There is a season two of The Dropout. And it's just like... I didn't consider that before when we shot that last scene. So I was like, how does, you know, it's such a badass scene, but it's also in sequence, but it's, but it's also like, what's happening? Where, where, where is she going? You know? And for anyone who, who watched the story closely, like everyone knows where she's going to trial, but also like that petulance, that anger at the world just shows you exactly where the effect that all this had on her, which is to say not much. That's what I believe. Yeah. Um, I mean, she's a kid saying no fair, right? Yeah. No fair. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it. I'm not, don't stop me. And I want to know more. It's so funny. I was having drinks with a colleague last night and I was like, Oh, I'm going to interview Amanda tomorrow. And he said, Oh, you should ask her if there's going to be a season two. And I said, no, she wouldn't want to do a season two, but I, I guess I was wrong. Yeah, I know. I wouldn't have thought I would have wanted to either. I, you know, you sign all these deals when you're doing TV now because everything's TV, and it's so hard to say no, only one season because people want to do a bajillion seasons and sign you up forever. But it for me, like it would, it wouldn't feel comfortable committing to something, especially if I don't have a great time on the first season, and if like it, it doesn't end up flowing or like working out in some way, and it feels just too stressful to be, you know, something I would want to commit to long-term. It's just, you never know. And now I I see it was very hard. It was the most fun I've ever had though, as an actor, because it was a character. Um, You know, so many of my actor friends, and I have a lot of friends who are actors, like New York theater actors, especially. And so many of them said like, this is like the first character you've ever played. Like truly like, Yes, I play Marion Davies, but but like this is a character. This is me adopting a new way of walking and speaking and communicating. And it's just this is actually what I was always meant to do, or I always meant to give in the. I was like get, getting the opportunity was was very new to me to play somebody like this. And so now I think it's also partly wanting to do a season two is also partly being like, but but let me do it again because <laughs> when am I going to get? 
the opportunity to play somebody that I that I felt like I could really nail. So that's just also a fear, like that I'll never get the opportunity. And it's also that there's a lot more to say and do. And um, Liz Merriweather is, you know, it it was a lot harder and longer and a longer process for her than it was for anybody. So it's really up to her what she decides to do next. And and I'm happy if it's just like two or three episodes or like a, a movie. Like it, it would just it would be the another thrill of my life if I got to continue it a little bit. Well, I'm putting my request in now for more Laurie Metcalf scenes between with the two know, of you. Because <laughs> that kiss-off what? scene with her is electric and, you know, you're both brilliant in it and it's just, yeah. This cast was insane, by the, the way. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's so stacked. Elizabeth Marvel, incredible um, mm-hmm. in this last episode, yeah. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, it's quite something. Um, no and that, that final scene is, is really... I don't think people will feel that dissatisfaction of, of a less than finale. So put those worries to rest. You know, Amanda, I think we're out of time, but this was so great. And thank you for the work. You really did nail it. And it's been a thrill to watch. And you kind of enter a new era of your acting career. I think it's it's really cool. So thank you. It's nice to be this age. You know, I, I play moms now. And I, I don't know why, where I heard it, but like back in the day, I remember people talking about, oh, now I only play parents, I only play mothers. And it's just actually like the things that are being written and that I'm getting the opportunities to do are just, they're all parents, but I can relate to that in a way. And it also, I kind of think, makes people way more interesting. Anybody in their 30s and 40s, like they just, they're more interesting roles, whether they're parents or not. But being a parent and getting to play people with kids, it's just like, there's there's a lot there. A lot more than than the roles that I that were available when I was in my twenties. So it's just like it's good timing for me. So yeah, thanks for. I mean, this this stuff is cool. I could talk about the show that I think actually really did a lot for me as a as a, an actor. So and who just had a kid, Elizabeth Holmes. So Boy, all the more reason. That's a whole other. Well, season <laughs> two. You know what I mean. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, Well, until then, uh, thanks again, Amanda, and uh, congrats. Thank you so much. So that does it for today's Little Gold Men. Uh, we'll all be back on Thursday. This week's episode is our 2023 Oscar predictions with guest Joe Reed. It's a really fun one. And uh, Richard, because you very modestly didn't overplug Still Watching earlier, I'll do it for you. People should listen to this entire season of Still Watching, uh, Downfall of the Startups, about the dropout, and also We Crashed and Super Pumped. It's been uh, great to be on a few episodes and to listen to. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it, too. Yeah, yeah. It's been a different approach to cover three shows at once, but they were so thematically similar that um, it, it made sense some sense um and now that the dropout's over we're we're down to two shows so yeah please catch up and and all three are worth watching certainly um for great performances and fascinating stories based on real life yeah uh well in the meantime you can find uh, more of our coverage of the dropout and those other shows and about still watching a little gold men etc at vf.com you can follow us at little gold men and on our own i am at katie rich and richard where i laws you can also send it to text with us at subtext. Join subtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 213-513-4203. This episode, as always, was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. 